This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. Well, it's been a long election campaign. Some would say it's been a bit tedious and there's not been that much on health. And what we decided for this last health report before the election on Saturday is that we would try to cover some of the health issues that have not been covered by the campaign, by the major parties. So we've got uh, a panel who know what they're talking about with us today. Chris Boy, Dr Chris Moy, who's Vice President of the AMA and a General Practitioner in South Australia. Professor Stephen Duckett at the University of Melbourne and former Health Programme Director at the Gretton Institute. Dr Rachel David, who's CEO of Private Healthcare Australia. That's the umbrella organisation for private health insurance. And last but not least, Pat Turner, who's CEO of the National Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation, NACHO, which is the umbrella organization for aboriginal medical services which are community controlled welcome to all four of you hi Hi, pat you've just got had a study done of the economics of healthcare in aboriginal communities that's right Uh, we commissioned uh, equity economics to look at the gap in health expenditure in terms of what uh, is paid by the government uh, for all Australians and for Aboriginal people. And we have found that uh, for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, we require an additional $5,042 per head of population in the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community. And that equates to $4.4 billion shortfall in funding Aboriginal health in this country. So 2.6 billion of that is from the Commonwealth and 1.8 is from the states and the territories in terms of what they should be inputting. So this is the gap between, and this is adjusted for the health status of Aboriginal people? Absolutely. So we have uh, just over two times the burden of disease that other Australians have on average and the life expectancy of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander still remains eight to nine years below that of other Australians. And we have rates like uh, rheumatic heart disease among our youth, 55 times more likely to die from rheumatic heart disease, Um, 3.7 times more likely to have kidney disease, 3.3 times more likely to have diabetes, 3.2 times more likely to suicide as youth, and twice, uh, 2.1 times more likely to die in infancy. So these are pretty horrific statistics. And what's driving uh, this is the overall uh, lack of funding um, or equal funding to make up for the health gap uh, because we can't close the gap uh, between the life outcomes of our people until we get at least equal funding, as other Australians do, on the basis of need. So the, when, when these statistics have been put out before, it's been in terms of Medicare and the pharmaceutical benefits scheme, and which is a pretty crude measure of what I presume Aboriginal people need. Uh, I mean, so in, in other words, if you're living in Turek or Vaucluse or Netherlands, you're, you are disproportionately overusing Medicare for your health status and Aboriginal people are proportionately underutilising, as in fact are elderly people in Australia. So is it just more doctor visits here or is the money to be spent no. more sophisticatedly? 
Well, we like to spend whatever money we get more in a more sophisticated and strategic manner. And uh, so in each of our uh, pre-budget treasury submissions, we've outlined these. And, of course, we've done an election submission to both the major parties and uh, and drew their attention to this $4.4 billion funding shortfall uh, for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people throughout Australia. So, so many of our people uh, hospitalised, uh, and if you just even look at uh, hospitalisation figures from AIHW, I think they were done a few years ago, they're a bit old, um, but, you know, um, the three main reasons for hospitalisation can be prevented if they get the proper primary health care uh, in the first place. So, um, and the hospital uh, discharge, uh, or what do you call it, uh, leave without, uh, you know, doctor's consent. Signing yourself um, out, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, signing yourself out. Um, you know, some 20,000 Aboriginal people do that a year. And we're really worried about this because of the treatment of Aboriginal people in hospitals and the fact that they have to travel so far away from home. So to what extent uh, has... To what extent has this been addressed by either party, in the major party in the campaign? No, not really. But both, uh, well, um, we've had some increases from uh, Greg Hunt uh, for the infrastructure funding, uh, but our sector is nearly, you know, 50 years old. Our first health service was set up in Redfern. And, uh, but our infrastructure needs are so great, almost a billion dollars, which we've been telling the government about for several years. So we have got an increase of 260-odd million dollars over the next few years, which is a huge injection, and we're very pleased with that, but it's still a shortfall of, you know, 750 million, if you like. Um, there's been a commitment uh, towards... Uh, GPs by Anthony Albanese of a billion dollars, and so we expect our fair share of that. In fact, in fact we expect at least 6% of that billion dollars to go to our shows um, because of the health needs of our people. And, um, and then there's been bits and pieces of uh, um, announcements, but it's not really in an overall strategic manner, which is the way that we like to... To do things. I might come to Chris Moy. I mean, Chris, this is a discussion about primary care. Sorry to get technical for the audience, but it is the cornerstone of our of our system, the general practitioner and also the, all the other healthcare professionals that work in the community. Um, what's missing from your point of view? Well, and, and that conversation with Pat was almost entirely about primary care. The interesting thing is, is that um, um, her group is on the same group as us, which is the primary care task force, which was set up by the Liberal government, uh, which spent two years trying to develop a thing called a ten-year primary health plan, and wasn't, and wasn't funded in the budget. Yes, which was left on the table, and in fact, already had previously had four hundred fifty million dollars uh, budgeted, but somehow disappeared into general revenue. And the interesting thing is, is that. Last week, the I mean, after four weeks of fluff and bluster about policy, health policy, we saw actually the first major significant announcement that something may actually make the difference in one area, which is primary care, general practice, which was the announcement by the Albanese uh, government of a pledge for a billion dollars 
to really change the way we fund general practice to some degree, evolve general practice. So just talk us through that billion dollars because Pat mentioned it there. Um, because the whole principle, and we've covered the 10-year reform plan on the health report, is based on changing the model because Medicare doesn't work very well in general practice. Look, we've had this banal debate about bulk billing rates for so long, and all this is about a $38 rebate to help patients see their doctor. And unfortunately, because of these freezes that have occurred over a long period of time, that $38 has become so um, behind what it should be. What has happened now is, is that the way medicine is provided in general practice or favoured in health economic terms is a conveyor belt, um, short transaction, six-minute type medicine, which is useful for sim simple problems, but not for the world that we live in now, which is actually where we have a lot of people with aged chronic diseases. So is the ALP, we, you know, Pat and I used the word sophisticated there, is the ALP planning to spend that billion dollars in a sophisticated way and not just pour money, you know, good money after bad in terms of the fact that the existing system doesn't work? Well, this is where it's funding the Liberal party's own plan, ironically, which has been agreed by every stakeholder, AMA, RICGP, all the major stakeholders, including consumer groups, the CIA is a Consumer Health Forum. But essentially what the idea is to, ch to base funding in the future and favour funding on a thing called voluntary patient enrolment. So that instead of actually favouring volume, which is the way it is at the moment, and a transaction as far as the basis of medicine, what it'll be is that people will vote with their feet and sign up on a voluntary basis to a practice that they believe will provide high-quality care, does provide high-quality care. But as part of that, funding starts to go to those practices that are willing to provide the more, more time with their patient, more services like allied health and nurses, more, more after hours, more home visits, those sort of things, which is what people want and need, especially in a world where we have far more um, chronic disease and age people who are stuck at home and to not just to not to favor just this um, transactional conveyor belt type medicine but to shift it in the way that people need so two questions one is what's in the 10-year plan for aboriginal communities mm -hmm. um i asked pat this before we came on air sure. and she said it doesn't look as if there's a lot and secondly the ama has been the bastion of fee-for-service and the 10-year plan moves away from fee-for-service okay first up is as we have moved on and the, the AMA, the the AMA has moved on, that we do need to understand that fee-for-service will still be important as being the basis of medicine, you know, for a lot of the simple problems, but we need to change funding to favour the sort of high-quality care. People want, people are not so much worried about the, uh, just, they want more time with their doctor. They actually want more, um, um, that longitudinal relationship, that birth to death relationship, which is what this favours. But in, t in terms of um, um, other areas like rural and uh, Indigenous populations, um, they are very much a part of that because we need to change the way that it, the care is provided there because we realise that, for example, fee-for-service in particular doesn't work because the doctors are not there to provide the care. We'll come back to consulting communities and allowing community control in a minute. Rachel David from the private health insurance industry, um, what happens in general practice matters a lot to you, doesn't it? Well, absolutely. The downgrading of primary care and general practice in particular relative to other parts of the health system has had quite a serious impact, particularly with older people that are seeking care for chronic conditions and they're not being worked up in the appropriate way in, you know, the bulk billing clinics and with the six-minute consultations. They're often pushed down an interventionist path far too early 
and often and in many cases end up seeing the wrong practitioner for the wrong reasons and end up with sub-quality care that um, pushes them back into the system at a later point. Now, this um, is something that can be prevented, but we need to understand that the Medicare system, as it was set up, including the bolt-on part that is private health insurance, which is connected to the Medicare system through the MBS. So just to explain, when you make a claim on your private health insurance, the private health insurance company uses the Medicare rebate. First of all, is there a Medicare rebate? And secondly, that's the basis for which they reimburse you as a member of a private health insurance company. That's correct. So we're not separate. It's connected together when people seek care um, in a private hospital or um, in some cases in the community. And But this was a system that was designed in the late 70s and 1980s and we don't even have the same diseases now. I think uh, Dr Chris Moy alluded to the fact that, you know, we're now managing um, a number of frail-aged people and but also a number of people who are in um, early to late middle age who are working much longer. They're, and they're seeking care, much like they tune up their car, you know, they're going to have their hip replacement or, you know or their knee replacement because they want to go back to work or keep looking after their grandchildren or travel the world. And they've got 30 years of doing this. They need to get on the right track and have someone manage their um, their life journey through that process. So, so would you... So would, I'm, sorry, go ahead. So would you... I mean, there has been a movement from the private health insurance industry, controversial, to cover people outside hospital because you're not allowed to cover people outside hospital at the moment. No, we're not. And I think this is an increasing source of frustration um, for private health insurance members. Private health insurance, the way it was designed back under the Hawke-Keating and the Hawke-Keating era, it does an excellent job at covering people for in-hospital care, um, including some very, very complex and expensive cases. But for out-of-hospital care, people can be left with some extraordinary out-of-pockets for their specialist care. And, you know, even people that need regular GP consults, not only is the GP um, poorly remunerated by Medicare, but, you know, if they charge out-of-pockets as well, that can really put people off. So I think that what private health insurance can do, if we think about this in a pragmatic way, there is a group of people, 14 million people in the community that are prepared to pay something towards the cost of their care. They would ideally like to have a family doctor that can see them through cradle to grave, as as Dr Moy mentioned. And it is crazy to think that in some way the funding that is generated through private health insurance can't in some way help that process. I don't think But of course GPs would argue it creates a two-tier system. Um, you know, two classes of patients or complexity. You might be with HCF or you It only does that. It only does that if you try and throw money at it through the existing non-fit-for-purpose MBS system and if you're always chasing these MBS rebates. I think we need to look at this through a more sophisticated lens as we've talked about it before. Are there specific areas in which private health insurance can make a contribution to a practice for things like pain management, 
in the community, like multidisciplinary pain management in the community or managing addictions in the community, which are two things which drive a lot of people into hospital care. And some of it is actually very ineffective hospital care because they've gone down the intervention path too early or they've been sent to a super specialist in the wrong area. You're listening to so, the health you're listening to The Health Report here on Radio National with me, Norman Swan, and I'm talking at the moment to Rachel David from Private Healthcare Australia. Also with us is Dr Chris Moy, Vice President of the AMA, Pat Turner, National Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation, uh, Nacho. And um, sorry, I'll come back to you. Well, actually, one more question. I've also got Stephen Duckett on the line. I'm just going to bring him on in a second from the University of Melbourne. Just one final question is we seem to have some private health insurers, amazingly, who are supporting the Labour Party in this campaign. Look, private health insurance isn't isn't a political product. I mean, what the, predominantly, um, but pre predominantly, the people that purchase private health insurance are women, and they're working women with children, also supporting um, older relatives. So, whatever that demographic chooses to do, um, might be influencing how this is being perceived. So, we're there. We're here to represent. Um, our members, which are health funds, and their members, which are people choosing to take out private health insurance. And professional women are by far the biggest growing group, but they're also the group that's currently disrupting federal politics. So make of that what you will. Stephen Duckett, what's missing from the campaign? So, uh, as Chris said, right up until the end, we haven't had much uh, in terms of primary care. And unless you get primary care right, it is the foundation level of the system, the whole system falls apart. The other thing that's uh, missing from the campaign is the reality of COVID. COVID is still with us. People are still dying from COVID. There are three times as many deaths from COVID uh, this calendar year than in the previous two uh, calendar years. So it is amazing that we haven't had a lot of discussion about it. Health workers around the country are just overwhelmed at the moment under an enormous pressure. The emergency departments are overwhelmed, partly because the emergency departments were overwhelmed before COVID, but partly because people are getting sick. People have deferred their care during uh, the pandemic, during the peak of the pandemic. They're now coming up for care. The beds are now being used uh, to catch up on elective procedures which were deferred, and yet neither party has mentioned the word COVID, neither party has proposed any solutions to help deal with the backlog and the, and the, and the overhang. Why do I think it is? Well, I think it's partly because the, the coalition doesn't want to mention the word COVID because it managed the pandemic so incredibly badly. And Labor doesn't want to mention the COVID, uh, COVID because it will be immediately suggested that they want to lock people up and throw away the key and then and reintroduce lockdown. So, you know, both are embarrassed about it. Stephen Duckett, why there still seems to be a disconnect in both political parties from understanding what determines your health and what determines your health is to some extent, well, to, to a large extent, your education, what sort of housing you have, what job do you have? There doesn't seem to be an explicit link amongst the major parties, is that, I mean, is that fair? Um, well, the Labor Party has put forward a proposal for a Centre for Disease Control, which I think is a bad name, but in their proposal, 
they have said this is something that's going to deal, amongst other things, with social and economic determinants of health, the our housing and uh, economic issues and the social and cultural issues that uh, impact on your health. Unfortunately, everybody has said, oh, this is all about infectious diseases. Well, no, it's not. If it's about prevention, if it's about disease control, it has. To, we have to think about that broadly and we have to think about it in terms of someone has to deal with the social and economic determinants of health. We just have to look at COVID and the death rate uh, in poor uh, neighbourhoods was two and a half times in uh, wealthy neighbourhoods. So, you know, we saw the impact of social economic determinants during COVID and we see it all the time in the other parts of the system. Um, Chris, my, the, um, let's just move on to another topic which is getting some coverage but again doesn't seem to have an impact on the campaign which is what Stephen Duckett referred to there which is ramping and hospital stress and you've got this disconnect between GPs who are paid for by the Commonwealth and hospitals that are paid for by the by the states and there's no incentive really for GPs to make a difference here. Yes unfortunately part of the problem in the health system is all we live in silos we work in silos and we when we don't owe each other anything to some degree, and that's actually been part of the problem. But having said that, I think we really do need to shore up general practice. But in amongst all the things like the 10-year plan, there is the possibility of us starting to link results in general practice um, in terms of improving patients' quality of care for, say, diabetes, which may, if you if you handle it... Poorly, it would be better with one system, just give it all to the states and let the states coordinate your pay. That, that's what Rachel's talking about, isn't it, really? private health insurance have got skin in the game. If they pay general practices for results, it means that, in theory, patients get a better outcome and the hospitals have lower utilisation and your premiums go down or stay the same. You're fundamentally talking about a problem about federation, which has actually blocked a lot of this over time. I mean, Kevin Rudd tried this a while ago and that, that actually blocked a lot of things. And the problem is it is an issue of people not having skin in the game of the results of a patient when it's easy to transfer a patient to the next port of call. But I think the thing is, is that what you can do is actually try to make sure that the funding is such, for example, in general practice, the way head down the line of 10-year primary care, but also make sure that up the other end, we start actually talking with each other. So that, for example, I'll give you an example. A lot of the, probably the funding in hospital funding, for example, does it favour, for example, even we talked about private, for them working with general practitioners to try and work together as a team to try and stop that patient in who's got a complex illness ending up in hospital later. And there is great opportunity for that, which is the discussion where we start to need to be a little bit more innovative and actually see how we can actually make the funding actually fit the model that we want to, 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 it to be. But the system's broke. Pat, I might come back to you, but it is about what, what determines health and nowhere is that more acute than in yeah. Aboriginal communities. And I was challenging... Um, Stephen Duckett, that nobody seems to be talking or understanding at a party level whether or not, you know, the, the fact that something like housing has an enormous impact on uh, on this. What are you observing in terms of the campaigns um, and, and the promises by government? Well, I think it's been pretty weak. Um, I mean, I think that the Labor Party has said something about social housing, um, but, you know, for home ownership, and uh, the, the coalition or the Liberal Party's policy allowing people to access super, well, it'd be nice to have a job so our people could get super. 
um, for a start. Um, it's also a fact that we don't have a lot of private health insurance holders because of the poverty in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australia. But the social determinants of health have been a key part of the agenda of Aboriginal community-controlled health from the beginning because we know how much housing and overcrowded housing and unhealthy housing impacts on uh, the residents of those places. So housing has always been a key issue. We have a policy on housing for health and we advocate that uh, at every opportunity with government uh, to fix these underlying causes. I don't think you can separate housing and environmental health. I think they go hand in hand together. Uh, like our model of care is a comprehensive primary uh, care model and primary care being people having access to the medical care when they want it and need it as close as possible to where they live. Um, and we have a multifaceted system where we're able to uh, provide allied health services as well as, and our Aboriginal health workers, of course, play a key role in our service delivery. But housing is absolutely fundamental and the pandemic has shown that up uh, for every, to, in every Australian's uh, lounge rooms. And, you know, Blind Freddie could see how, uh, how much needs to be done to fix Aboriginal housing in this country. And that's the fault of the Commonwealth and the states and territories. Now, one of the cornerstone of the Australian healthcare system is universal healthcare, but to each according to their need, which is what Pat Turner refer referred to right at the beginning, and you don't get shortchanged because you can't afford it. How much is that under threat at the moment, Rachel David? Because out-of-pocket costs are thought to be one of the causes of a threat to universal healthcare. Yeah, look, I think some of the tenets of a universal healthcare system are access and affordability. And Pat has raised a really clear issue with access, and that is in some of these remote and rural and remote communities where a number of Aboriginal people live, it's a serious challenge to get people, um, qualified people, to locate there and to, you know, and to build up the workforce. But on the issue of affordability, particularly for outpatient care, I think within in hospital care, you know, you, you've got weight, you can either, it's, it's um, related to your ability to pay or your ability to wait, but the actual level of access is reasonably good. But for outpatient care, for particularly for people that need repeated appointments, what you've seen is a lot of um, state-run public hospitals actually privatise their outpatients and a number of those doctors do charge gaps, those specialist doctors, and, there's, and they don't offer free outpatients anymore. Um, and some of those gaps are, you know, becoming pretty significant. And we've seen, you know, it can range between about $50 to $500. And in addition... And in yeah. addition to that, you've got the you've got the diagnostic tests that come on top of that. And for some of the um, some of the quotes that we've seen around the place for diagnostic imaging, for instance, as an outpatient, are pretty significant. Ste Stephen Duckett, we haven't got much time left, but to what extent is universal healthcare threatened in Australia? Do you believe the out of pockets Sorry. that Rachel and uh, and Pat have been talking about are a serious problem, especially for specialists. And uh, as Rachel said, the the state government, which used to provide public hospital outpatient services, has, has often cut those. And so, 
people are either having to uh, find big sums of money to see a private specialist or waiting months or years for public hospital outpatients. And it's something that uh, a government, uh, whoever is elected on Saturday, needs to address. Well, we've certainly scratched the surface. Thanks to our panellists, Chris Moy, South Australian General Practitioner and Vice President of the Australian Medical Association, Stephen Duckett, formerly of the Grattan Institute, now of the University of Melbourne, Rachel David of the Private Healthcare Australia, of the private health insurance industry, and last but not least, Pat Turner, who is CEO of the National Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation. This has been The Health Report. I'm Norman Swan. See you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.